Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday, the 31st of August, as we record. We, or at least I, have braved air traffic control disasters earlier in the week to bring you today's show. And we come to you, as usual, from the FT Recording Studio. Today, we are looking at half-year figures from insurer Prudential and discussing its plan to propel itself forward in Asia. Then we move to Europe and look at what's dogging the German economy and if anything can be done about it. And we finish by going global with a preview of next week's cover feature, that being our annual Top 50 Funds. Joining me to discuss this are over the line, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Dan. Good to have you back. Thanks, Julian. Mark Robinson. How's it going, Dan? Very well, thank you. And in the studio, Dave Baxter. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're going to kick off with Prudential then. Half-year figures out on Wednesday. A new chief exec, a new strategy now in tow, but we'll get to that in a minute. How did the figures themselves look, Julian? Yes, I mean, they look pretty good on the surface of it because uh, China lifting its COVID restriction meant that uh, the trade, the insurance trade between Hong Kong and China picked up uh, hugely. So, uh, the new business uh, figures for for that particularly was up by five hundred percent over the course of the half. So it was a from that point of view, it was a pretty solid uh, set of figures. I mean, the really interesting thing about it was though was that um, there was a sense that the company didn't have a strategic plan at least uh, this time last year. But they actually came forward in these results, and uh, the CEO put in quite a sort of chest-beating performance, I guess you could describe it, in, in saying how uh, Prudential is going to double its new business profits within a few years. Uh, you know that they're going to completely change how the insurer is managed, and you know they're going to make the most of the Asian pivot, which uh, really is what it's based on these days. So it was an, it was an interesting half for them i guess uh, although the numbers really until you see what the comparison is going to be next year were quite hard on their own to interpret i guess that would be the best way of, uh, of describing it so in the sense that they had then had the space to put forward their new growth plan uh, with all the sort of fanfare that uh, that, that it deserved and uh, yeah so i thought i thought that was an interesting an interesting part of it but uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm not uh I, I'm, I mean mark might have some some thoughts on this but i'm, I'm generally a prudential skeptic i think but uh, uh particularly of, of the way that they've pivoted to asia but uh on the on the surface of it so far it seems to be working uh but you know whether that will continue is a is an open is an open situation i think yeah the the New growth plans, you say, targeting compound annual growth rate of fifteen to twenty percent until twenty twenty seven. Quite, quite an ambitious or certainly, a, you know, an aggressive goal there. Uh, what do you, what do you make of some of the things underlining that that you just spoke about in terms of, you know, the reorganisation of the business, things like that? What, what kind of things are they looking to do there? Well, I mean, obviously they, they're looking at cutting costs uh, inevitably, and, and there are a lot of costs that they can take out of it. I mean, there's a, you know. They send people around house to house on mopeds collecting premiums, for example. And I, I imagine that that uh, that cost is going to get out of uh, is going to be uh, dropped as uh, a more digital approach is adopted. Um, and there's you know 
they're also looking at uh, areas like India and Africa as a way of offsetting uh, the Chinese markets. Um, I mean, that wasn't something they were talking about when they were pivoting to Asia. So they obviously recognize that some of the skepticism around the shares uh, is related to how China is performing. So, uh, you know, there is another market there to exploit. I mean, whether they're in the best position to do it is is another question. But um, uh, yeah, there, there is a there is there is a combination. There is stuff that the CEO could do. I mean, he can he can keep costs under control because it is a cost heavy business in some ways, and he has other markets he can he can look at. Um, but we, again, you you don't really know what the comparator will be until the China-Hong Kong situation sorts itself out and you get comparable figures. On that note, you did see, didn't you, as you say, that the big increase, certainly in the Hong Kong uh, business, China, uh, you know, as we've come to expect with uh, it's slightly underwhelming, perhaps reopening this year was less impressive, albeit some of that Hong Kong figure, you know, a lot of that business, as far as I understand, it is mainland Chinese going to Hong Kong for these products. So, you know, that's reflected in the Hong Kong numbers as well. Uh, yes, I mean, you, yeah. you can't. It's difficult to separate them out. I think one from the other, um, and obviously, it, it, it attracts the kind of well-off Chinese um, consumer that w will be able to do that trade um, and buy those products in Hong Kong itself. So, whether you should count them now as one market is is a moot point. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, China itself is not looking uh, promising, really, and uh, you know the, the numbers for them. For that part of the business were relatively stagnant i would have said considering that um the whole uh, market has been opened uh in, in recent times because of the lifting of covid restrictions so yeah you can see how the the issues that uh that china has in its underlying economy are starting to affect the services that service that part of the economy you know um yeah. or yeah the, you know, the things that people can afford to buy on the on top of their on the back of their uh, residential, you know, their property wealth is is starting to see a, see a hit. Yeah, I suppose there are two sides really to the coin. Obviously, aren't there? The, on the one hand, you know, the the long term growth prospects, you know, an aging population, an underbanked and underinsured population are, are obvious, especially if you target the uh, the higher end. And I know they've been changing their business mix in China a little bit. On the other side, there's so much uncertainty in China, and you know, there could be some. You know, the, the, to take an extreme example, I suppose the threat of, you know, things like capital controls for people who do go to Hong Kong to buy these products could one day rebound. But that's, uh, you know, at the the far end, I suppose, of hypotheses. The country is exporting bill, uh, millionaires by by the boatload at the moment. So mm. you, you can't uh, you can't discount the idea that capital controls will, will not be brought in before the end of the year. But um, yeah. at the moment, we don't know. That's as simple as that. Mark, what's your take on Prudential? Well, I, I tend to think I'm probably slightly more optimistic than uh, Julian, but that may just well betray a, a sentimental bias on my part, given that I used to be in the Pru in a, in a former lifetime. I guess um, you could say that the it, the group drew a line in the sand midway through uh, 2020 when it offloaded its uh, US arm Jackson to a private equity-backed insurer over there. And so from that point on, you know, as it's been well documented, it, it effectively became uh, an emerging market play. And that's why current uh, the current issues in, in China uh, sort of imperiling what uh, Julian described as its uh, 
Asian premium, uh, particularly as China's showing symptoms of what's been referred to as a balance sheet recession. You know, the level, the high, sky high level of private debt is depressing um, economic activity there, and that's partly the reason why the bounce back hasn't been as pronounced in the economy as people had been hoping for. Um, I did know in the results as well that there's uh, uh, an increased focus, I guess, on India and Africa. And I guess this assumes that, um, well, if this is in fact a, a gathering priority, it, it reflects, largely reflects demographic change, uh, forecast demographic change. You know, you saw, and then there's reasons to back this up as well. You know, India saw sales growth of 15% and was double that in Africa, and both locales. I've seen a marked increase in the number of uh, a, um, agent numbers as well. So that's that, that goes some way to uh, explaining why the, 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 the group is actually well-backed and why that valuation um, uh, seems about right at the moment. Um, they, they're looking, in fact, the, the forward rating is, is less attractive than it was this time last year, and the peg ratio suggests that the market has it just about right at the moment. Um, but you know, the, 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 there's still a great deal of potential in terms of market penetration in Asia as well. And uh, Dan, as you alluded to before, you know, the the insurance market historically has it's risen in line with the expansion of the middle class, and that's going to play out further in China, one imagines, and perhaps to a good, greater degree in some of those other emerging markets in Asia and in fact in, in Africa too. So I remain slightly more optimistic than uh, than Julian's piece suggested. On the, the valuation you, you mentioned there, I suppose another question is really, you know, looking at who Prudential who Prudential shares are for, you know, the dividend was increased, I think maybe 9%, albeit when you Factoring some currency fluctuations, there's not much of an increase there, but and you know the overall yield is still quite low. It's not, it's not like the you know the kind of typical UK insurance business, yeah. which is perhaps why you know it's under pressure to deliver these um, ambitious growth targets to prove it can be a, a growth business. Well, I think that's where it is in its space. I mean, you know, the, the insurance has been around for decades and decades, but. Given the pivot towards Asia, you could make the argument that it is entering uh, or in, in the midst of a growth phase at the moment. That hasn't necessarily uh, played out in uh, in previous years, but that, I think that's why it receives the backing it does, because obviously total returns for a stock like that uh, uh, pale next to some industry rivals. And I think that's just an acknowledgement of the fact that it is that it is setting out, that it is pivoted towards these growth markets. And yet, those um, the, the penetration levels are still relatively low at this stage. What do we think of the question of you know, domicile? As with HSBC, you know, it's a question that is raised with Prudential. Certainly now, it's it has pivoted to Asia. Is that something that could come back on the table again in the near term, or is that you know in the long grass for now? Well, I, I I don't know to be to be perfectly honest, but I'd be very surprised if it doesn't. Uh, there's a fair amount of um, speculation that this is exactly what will happen uh, as more and more business is uh, initiated in the Far East as well. And it's, and it's difficult to to 
un understand the, the, the rationale of a, a listing in London, uh, aside from the fact probably capital markets uh, in Hong Kong and elsewhere in Asia still aren't developed to the same degree uh, as Western markets. But I mean, I, I guess so, you know, it's 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 a sovereign investments and uh, pressure from Beijing itself uh, will probably force uh, Peru's hand one day. Julian, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, to, to a certain extent. I mean, they already have this strange hybrid regime where uh, the accounting is partly uh, regulated by the regulator in Hong Kong, which determines their capital ratios. But then they also do um, IFS 1.7 for bits of the accounting. So there's, it's, a, it's a strange hybrid uh, mishmash of um, regulation. So it might make sense for them just to concentrate everything in, in Hong Kong and just uh, uh, take it from there. But um, whether that, uh, you know, given the company's prestige and uh, it's waiting in the foot to see whether that will happen is um, another issue or whether enough for shareholders would vote for it is open to question. But I mean, certainly the management and actually not many analysts really are talking about uh, the listing moving at all. So there doesn't seem to be this uh, activism around um, Prudential that uh, HSBC experiences with its shareholder base, for instance. Yeah, I think I tend to side with you on that uh, on that basis. Uh, seems like yeah, it might not be imminent. Never say never, I suppose. Uh, we've learned to be surprised, but uh, yeah, that, that's you know something maybe for for later on in future. Well, well, let's turn to uh, you know either something closer or further from home, depending on how you define Prudential nowadays, and that's Germany. Uh, Julian, you've written about uh, you know the country, the economy uh, this week uh, in the magazine. Yeah, I mean Germany is the land of my fathers, as it were. Um, yeah, it's a, a subject which, for obvious reasons, is close to my heart. But um, yeah, Germany is an interesting case, both for uh, investors and uh, and sort of economics watchers at the moment, because the country is going through its second period of stagnation in the last twenty years. So. Uh, at the beginning of the millennium, it was dubbed the sick man of Europe. Um, they, you know, they sorted out their welfare system and uh, job creation, and China came on stream, and they were selling boatloads and boatloads of stuff to China. And on the back of which was being, um, uh, you know, production financed by and fueled by Russian gas. Uh, and now that those two macro stories have ended. Uh, the country has sort of slipped into a, a kind of period of, in, in, of introspection and stagnation. Um, and there's a, a real sense of doom and gloom around quite a bit of uh, the DAX at the moment, which uh, is kind of reflected in the fact that uh, they have the same problem as the FTSE and that some, several of the largest companies are kind of decamping to the US. Um, Linda was the, the single biggest uh, company on the DAX 40 as it is now and uh, that left last uh, autumn uh, to new pastures on on the new york stock exchange and uh, that, that's also caused a lot of soul searching uh, and in you know an introspection which is also a uniquely german reaction to these kind of situations but uh, yeah so it, it, it's it is changing the the economy ha probably has to change um and the market probably has to change with it i think that's the the the, the the conclusion that we reach in the piece um but yeah it's a question of how 
how effectively the government can stimulate and whether they can reach any agreement on on, on how to do that. That's the question, whether they cut personal taxes or they go for corporate taxes. Corporate taxes obviously would be better for share prices. Um, but yes, it's it's a bit of a mess. I think that's um, the best way of uh, describing it. Well, on the subject of uh, corporate tax, that does seem to be the the initial move, doesn't it? Because there was this package agreed earlier this week in, in principle, €7 billion Euro package of corporate tax relief in a bid to get things moving again. It hasn't really... Uh, well, there's a couple of points there, I suppose. One is that you know, markets in general have been a bit more buoyant this week, so it's hard to discern uh, any market impact from that specifically. The other side is that uh, I think, as much as I'm sure corporations and companies appreciate that, the, there's been some dismay from the energy-intensive industry in Germany, of which there is, of course, a lot, that there's been no further support there. I suppose, you know, winter winter is coming again. It's the final day of August uh, now, isn't it? So, you know, that, that could become a live situation again very soon. Yeah, I mean, winter is a coming, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, obviously the, a lot of their steel make. I mean, they have very heavy industry that we don't have or we haven't had here for a generation. So, uh, steel making, uh, large scale chemical production, uh, all that requires a lot of energy. And, you know, they were getting cheap energy from Russia. And um, even though the, uh, they've impressively, you know, improved their LNG capacity and things like that. Mm. Um, LNG is by na- by its nature is is a lot more expensive to import for Germany than you know a pipeline going over over the the Urals, um, and uh, yeah, that 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 does pose a question about how they're going to absorb that cost and whether um, without some kind of support scheme uh, it'll just be unbearable for large companies to continue with uh, those kind of heavy. Energy intensive industries in in the country, but um, I mean nobody's talking about closing anything down yet. But it would be interesting to see uh, by the the first quarter of next year whether the you know people like ThyssenKrupp and and uh, BASF and uh, those kind of household names whether they're going to start moving production away from from Germany in order to get to take advantage of easier energy markets but uh, it's a long-term process um you I mean you could almost describe it really as that they're going through their their late, late stage industrial decline and in, in in a way that that uh, britain had to do in the 70s and 80s which uh you know seems to have been delayed by at least a generation yeah uh, on the subject of of investment as well you know of course, existing investment is not necessarily going to be mothballed unless you know things get really bad over the winter. But there have been some, I think, surveys in the past couple of weeks as well, suggesting that you know, new investment, as you uh, point out, Julian, it, it is by German companies. They are increasingly looking abroad for that, given the pressures on on that at home. So you know that seems to yeah. be in train already. Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, the IFO came out with a survey recently, which, which is the um, it's kind of the benchmark uh, the benchmark producers uh, producer survey. And um, it's generally showing that there is a form of capital flight that's uh, that's taken hold in the German market, and, and you know it's kind of reflected in companies listing elsewhere, isn't it? That's it's kind of it's a form of capital flight. Isn't it? To uh, to conclude, perhaps the, on Germany, you know, the the other data point we've had this week is you know pretty strong wage growth, which obviously is good on one level, but uh, from the company's point of view, or certainly from the economy point of view, 
that has tied in with some fairly sticky inflation numbers, which does suggest maybe more hikes from the ECB on the way, which would be another headwind, of course. Mark, how, how do you see sort of the German situation in sum, if such a thing can be, a, can be summed up? Well, I guess why, why it's interesting as well, and if you, if you take the view that Germany is the, uh, the author of its own misfortune, it's relevant because many of the misstep, missteps that have been taken over there have actually been repeated uh, in the UK too. So we, it's probably best that we don't become uh, too smug about the whole thing as well. Uh, some of the problems, such as uh, the level of bureaucracy as well, that's actually that's obviously repeated in Whitehall. You could also criticise the UK's energy policy in much the same way uh, as Germany's, uh, because now we're only uh, waking up to the fact that uh, our our previous infatuation with offshoring uh, the, the tech for our nuclear industry, for instance, uh, has put us in a, a vulnerable position. Germany has taken well through uh, the, the step to decommission all of their nuclear plants. I think the last one maybe went at the beginning of this year. Uh, that means that, like us, it's become more vulnerable to uh, energy price fluctuations. And um, it'll be some time before both countries actually um, sort of make the nut on the energy front as well, because uh, Germany has, has been quick to uh, turn to renewables and uh, is probably uh, ahead of most other European countries in that re regard. But as we've pointed out many times, that the inter intermittent nature of uh, wind and solar means that it's actually had to increase um, its energy imports into the country as well, further exacerbating that vulnerability too. And we can't think that there must be much chance of that changing anytime soon. Over the long run as well, like the UK, um, the low birth rates mean that Germany faces a, a big demographic drag on growth. Uh, possibly the UK is a, a, a little bit uh, more fortunate in that regard because uh, our birth rate is slightly higher and I think we have a, a larger percentage of uh, inward immigration too, net uh, immigration. So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess if you went by industry, by industry, Julian uh, alluded to the, the heavy industry over there, but even some of the, you know, the, what's more uh, synonymous with the German industrial power than its automotive uh, industry, but even some of the automa automakers themselves have made some production decisions based on what are overly optimistic assumptions on the the EV rollout. They're not alone in that because uh, the US manufacturers are going through that same process at the moment, but uh, more problems and, and uh, less solutions on, on the horizon. I mean, it's interesting in a way because, I mean, part of, um, you know, West Germany's uh, success redevelopment in the post-war period was down to the compact between uh, government corporations and, and the labor unions too. Uh, and that doesn't apply now. It appears, if anything, uh, apart from the government measures taken this year, uh, recently, to promote growth, uh, the, the level of bureaucracy uh, in Germany uh, acts, acts as a drag over the long run. So I think they just they, there's going to have to be some fundamental reform uh, on that base as well. On a on a positive note, to bring it back round to to the investors' point of view, I suppose we we should note that the DAX is up 
you know, 14% this year, which is a pretty good return, all things considered. Admittedly, some of that might have been a bit of a relief rally given concerns about, well, deindustrialization in the winter. But we'll see if that can be maintained. A decent uh, effort under the circumstances, though, certainly at the moment. It's time now, though, for our final segment of the show. Uh, this week's cover feature is on people power, human capital, and the role of a strong, well-incentivized workforce in making a good company and a, a good return. However, we are going to be talking about next week's cover feature, which, as I mentioned at the top, is our annual Top 50 Funds. Uh, Dave Baxter, our funds editor, once again in charge of assembling, compiling, crunching the numbers for this list, which we should say is a, a list of active funds. We have our separate ETFs list earlier in the summer. Uh, why don't we start, Dave, just, I suppose, going through some of the first principles of the list. How are we defining the top 50? How do we try and compile it? How is it structured? Yeah, so as you mentioned, we, we already have a kind of list of um, passive funds and people increasingly are kind of interested in passive funds. So with this list, we're largely looking at those kind of active funds that are giving you something different, something you perhaps can't really get in a passive format, something distinctive. Um, and of course, we're looking for cases where generally uh, the fund managers and the teams, the investment teams have managed to kind of generate some good returns, or I suppose in a few cases have managed to, um, you know, fulfill a stated purpose, for example, more kind of defensive performance or generating a good yield um, and that kind of thing. But it it is very hard, of course, to find, um, I suppose, the perfect active fund. And you do, you have to accept that there is a kind of a level of cyclicality in, in their performance. <clears throat> and you have to be able to explain why it performs one way or another in a, in a different environment. Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot of focus on active fund performance. Yeah, tends to be in an up market. They'll say, "Well, we, you know, do more protection on the downside," and then you get a tougher market like this, and you find, in some at least, that <laughs> you know they're underperforming again. So, yeah, the caveats there are: a, it's about which funds you look at; b, it's about how you use them, how you combine them, as you just suggested to you know produce a a good return for your specific risk profile. So, yeah, that's what we try and do. It. it in this feature, I believe, you know, a mix of equity, bond alternatives, focusing on some different styles as well. So something, hopefully, for everyone in there. The question, I suppose, for this year, looking ahead to next week's issue, you know, in theory, you could have a top 50 funds list that never changed any <laughs> at all <laughs> in any given year if you were, you know, really looking for the ultra long term. In reality, though, we obviously have to be mindful of things on the ground changing, you know, and certainly over the last 12 months, economically speaking, things have changed quite significantly, certainly in terms of the risk-free rate and things like that. So what's the level of turnover been this year? How's that compared to previous years? So this year, we've seen 12 changes to the list. Um, that is kind of roughly in line, at least with last year. I believe last year we had um, 11, but there's been, I think perhaps the nature of the changes has been a little bit different this year. So last year we tried, to, as you mentioned, we tried to um, kind of introduce a bit more balance in terms of investment styles. So you do have, uh, you know, different options depending on what you want. This year, you know, we, we've introduced changes across a few different areas from kind of UK equities to a few of our kind of alternatives names. I think perhaps one theme with the changes is... Um, if a fund hasn't particularly been doing what it's meant to, or perhaps it's been a little bit kind of disappointing and not really seeming to perform as well as it used to, 
we've in some cases almost used that as a good excuse to introduce something fresher. So this year we've tried to introduce a few, perhaps some kind of newer funds, perhaps ones that people won't be as familiar with as the as the really big names and ones that are kind of capitalising on uh, interesting trends. So to give one example, there's, there's a fund um, in our Japan category that is, uh, and this is a market narrative some people might be a bit tired of because they've heard it for many years, but there's the idea in Japan of there being... Uh, corporate reforms, companies having to become more shareholder friendly. And we've stuck fund in the list that kind of focuses on kind of activism with smaller companies and, and really, you know, kind of benefits from that trend. Yeah, there's a, there's a balance to be struck, isn't there, between, you know, we should say this list is not just about performance. It's not based on who's done badly this year and therefore they're out of the list. Equally, when times are tough, as they have been in many markets in recent months, that does show you how well funds are actually delivering on what they, they say they are going to do, and that can lead to some changes. So it's striking a balance between uh, you know recognising yeah. when underperformance is to be expected and to be tolerated and when perhaps it causes a rethink or at least when the argument for a different fund becomes stronger. Where, where uh, is there one particular area where more changes have been concentrated this year or is it spread quite broadly across regions, asset classes? It's, it is spread relatively broadly, and I, I suppose there are more changes in the kind of equity part of the list, but that's partly a function of the fact that it is a pretty equity-focused list still, so 35 of the names out of the 50, I believe, are equity funds. Um, I, I suppose we have, to give a couple of examples, though, we have seen a few changes when it comes to um, UK equities. So again, there we've kind of, we've moved away from a very well-established fund that, you know, people... People perhaps have, have some cause to believe that maybe it, it won't do as well as it used to simply because of its size and so on. And we've turned to a kind of newer, more interesting name that kind of has quite a distinctive approach and has really made a mark in the first kind of five years or so that it's, it's been in existence. And yeah, on the same note, in the kind of UK in, income category, we've we've kind of restructured things a little bit. We've, we've introduced a more core kind of income fund Um also, we, we've dropped a fund that is kind of actually a bit more total return focused because I suppose that that's just a market where if you really want yields, then you can go and kind of grab that with, with both hands. Um, but yeah, we, we have seen changes elsewhere. We've seen a couple of changes in the bond space. We've seen uh, a couple of changes when it comes to um, alternatives, uh, things like kind of wealth preservation, so-called wealth preservation trusts. Um I guess one of them noticed there have been a couple of instances where we have um, picked up a fund basically because of uh, what we've discussed in the past, um, this kind of uh, bargain effect going on, I suppose, in the investment trust space. You know, you've seen those really massive kind of discounts ballooning out this year and I suppose last year as well. And now in, in some cases, that's just, you know, a really good reason to kind of jump on a particular trust while it's going at that kind of bargain price. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Obviously, we are talking uh, in slightly oblique terms here because yeah. this is a preview and uh, uh, the feature is out next week. So if you do want to find out what those funds are that we've just been speaking about, do pick up a copy of the magazine out on the 8th of September. But for today, that's all we have time for. So thank you very much to Dave, to Julian and to Mark. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next time with another Companies and Markets show. 